Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And uh, last week we ended in verse 34, where the word of God says, And as concerning he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I'll give you the sure mercies of David. I'm going to bless your seed. Your seed will be eternal. And from your seed will come the Messiah. And Jew and Gentile that believe on him are going to be blessed. And that seed will be eternal. The church will be eternal. Enoch pictures a Gentile that gets raptured back in the Old Testament. Whereas Elijah pictures a Jew that gets raptured back in the Old Testament. The church is eternal. And I've made the case over the last little while that when you get born again, you are spiritually in heaven. You are physically on the earth. But you are now eternal. There was a moment when you did not exist. And there'll be a time when you will never cease to exist. But here, 34, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Promised back to David, back in the Old Testament. It starts with Solomon, and it goes to kings like Josiah, even uh, Manasseh. Some of the good, some of the bad. But ultimately, it is going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 35. And I pray the Lord God will bless today's broadcast. That will be heard all over the world. Thanks to the internet, the shortwave, and whatever means the Lord wishes to use to allow his word to go out and prosper during these dark days that we now live in. Look at 35, please. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Every other leader, every other so-called holy person has died and their body has rotted. Including Mary, including Muhammad, including the last 35, 45, 50 popes. One day you will die, one day I will die. If the rapture doesn't come for us, our bodies are going to the ground and they are rot. But here it says also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thine holy one in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet if you get hold of a Catholic catechism... And I got one from 1994. It speaks about the Holy One being Mary. But the Holy One, of course, is our blessed Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's read on, please. 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Jesus Christ is totally unique. And if you could find any part of his body, according to 1 Corinthians 15, everything is over. Christianity has fallen flat on its face. And that's why the Jews from Matthew 28 were so desperate to bribe the Roman soldiers when it came to the Lord's resurrection and subsequent ascension. Had his body been found, had it been possible to find his body, they would have found it. But of course, we know he's back in heaven now, seated at the right hand of the Father. So once again, this demonstrates the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But any other faith, any other leader, as far as they're concerned, it makes no difference to them whether their leader is dead and buried or not. But for us, we need the God-man back in heaven. And it says he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he won't come back until the rapture of the church. I don't believe that the Lord has made private visits to earth over the last 2,000 years. 
And I don't believe that Mary, the so-called Queen of Heaven, has been appearing to children in Medjugorje, Fatima or Lourdes. I believe that what you are looking at there are demonic appearances. Now it is true that some of those people that see these so-called visions, appearances, are susceptible and quite possibly brainwashed, like members of the cults. But if you take the time to study those appearances, those visions, for the most, you've got Catholics and non-Catholics seeing visions at the same time. And I think it's quite obvious that the devil is using such opportunities to confuse people even more, to get people off the beaten track and to believe on him, to worship him directly and indirectly. And he'll take it through Mary, he'll take it through Islam, he'll take it through the Watchtower, Society, Kingdom Hall, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, even Jewry. Modern Judaism is a false religion. He's not picky where the worship comes from. He'll take it wherever he can and whenever he can. But here, my Bible tells me, 36, 37, but he whom God raised again saw no corruption. 38, be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Let's break this down. 38, be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. We preach Jesus Christ in this ministry. The early church preached Jesus Christ. They didn't preach religion. They didn't preach, let's tithe and be prosperous and wealthy. They didn't say that if you weren't tithing, you would be cursed and damned. They preached Jesus Christ. We preach Jesus Christ. And if you're born again, you should be preaching Jesus Christ as well. On top of that, it says from 38... That through this man, there's the mediation between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. All of your past, present, and future sins. And by him, all that believe. There's the part that you need to do to be saved. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God isn't going to automatically save you. He's already reconciled the world unto himself. Second Corinthians 5. He's drawn all men unto him, John chapter 12. But as Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians 5, going into chapter 6, be ye reconciled to God. Behold, now is a day of salvation. Behold, now is a time to be saved. So you have to personally believe on the Lord to be saved. You have to what's called appropriate the atonement. You have to receive it to be saved. And you do so simply by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no lordship salvation here. You don't turn from all of your sins to be saved. That's impossible. And even if you could do that, what would happen if you missed a few? You come as you are, broken. You come as you are, like a beggar who's come to the end of his or her life. Can't live anymore. Can't go on anymore. Can't make it anymore. Religion has failed you. And you believe on him. And 39, you'll be justified, exonerated from all things. That is substitutionary atonement from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Out goes the works of the Old Testament. Out goes doing religion. Out goes trying to overcome this or overcome that. Out goes New Year's resolutions. Come as you are, broken and yet humble. And the Lord says he will save you to the uttermost. If you come unto God by him, sing ever liveth to make intercession for those that come unto him. Why? Because he ever liveth. To make intercession for such people. He is eternal. 
And that scripture was from Hebrews 7.25. But one last time from Acts 13.39. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Out goes works, out goes the mass, out goes any church membership. It's all about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 40, please. Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. 49, the offer has been made from God. But there's a warning. Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets, foretold back in the Old Testament in reference to Israel, for the most part not believing. And yet the Lord is a holy Lord. He's not willing that any should perish, but the Lord should come to repentance. Therefore, he makes the offer available time after time to everyone and anyone. Behold, he despises and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though man declare it unto you. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So you are saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are damned by not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord makes the offer available in verse 40, first of all to the children of Israel, and subsequently to the church, and yet man's free will, 41, will either result in salvation, if you believe, or damnation, if you do not believe. And I believe very clearly that the Lord wants all people to be saved, and yet of course he knows most won't be saved, but he still makes it possible for people to be saved. And that is where you get into the Lord's sovereignty and the free will of man. And somehow they marry up. Somehow the two come together. We don't quite understand it as finite beings. We are told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's an ongoing commission. We're not told who's going to be saved. We're not told uh, who won't be saved. All we are told and commanded to do is to preach the gospel. Be ready in season and out of season. It's an ongoing ministry. It's that ministry of reconciliation found back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But here, 41 and 40 fit together like a glove. God's offer, and yet it's conditional on the recipients receiving it and believing on it. 42. Now when the Jews were gone out to the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. I made the case of the last two studies that the SDA, the Seventh-day Adventists, and those that keep the Sabbath will use this chapter from Acts of the Apostles to argue that the early church, Jew and Gentile, would meet on a Saturday to worship Jehovah. And I made the case then, and I'll make it again this morning, that what you are dealing with here are Gentile proselytes to Judaism. Hence why they are meeting in a synagogue on a Saturday, or on a Saturday. But one more time, from 42, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached unto them the next Sabbath. You've got saved apostles, Paul and Barnabas, preaching to unsaved Jews, and also unsaved Gentile proselytes in a typical synagogue on a typical Saturday. You can't use these verses to prove that the early church met on Saturdays to worship the Lord. Now, it's quite possible, and it's quite likely, that the early Jewish leaders, like James, the Lord's half-brother, were sometimes uh, flipping back and forth on this whole issue of law and grace, old covenant and new covenant. 
And it's more than likely that the early church, as far as the Jews were concerned, the Jewish contingent were concerned, could quite possibly have met on the Sabbath. That's quite possible. In fact, I think we get that later on from Paul, who on one occasion he shaves his hair off, he takes a vow, he goes into the temple, and he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. So it is true that the early Jewish leaders were sometimes between both covenants. And that's not a million miles away from Romans 14, where Paul told us that we have liberty to mark a certain day out to worship the Lord, or not mark a certain day out to worship the Lord. But what you cannot get from this piece of scripture are saved Gentiles worshipping on the Sabbath in a typical synagogue. Hold that thought. 43, please. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Religious proselytes, like the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter 8. The congregation, Jew and Gentile, has now broken up, and they're going to encourage Paul and Barnabas to continue in the grace of God. It's a strange scripture that. You've got unsaved people persuading Paul and Barnabas, two saved apostles. And yes, Barnabas was an apostle to continue in the grace of God. And yet you could turn it around and suggest that Paul and Barnabas are perhaps encouraging this group of religious proselytes to continue in the grace of God. But that's slightly problematic because the latter hypothesis is somewhat difficult to deal with in the sense of it being a literal interpretation because they're not yet saved they're not far from the kingdom of god as the lord would say to one rich jewish leader on one occasion but if you're not in the kingdom of god you're outside of the kingdom of god and therefore grace hasn't yet been uh imputed to you you're not yet in the kingdom of god so i'll leave it with my former interpretation and continue on to get more light from these verses 44 and the next sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. You've now got unsaved people following this crowd to hear Paul and Barnabas. But again, it's a Sabbath. It's a Saturday, which is Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. It's involving a local synagogue because salvation is of the Jews. That's why the apostles went to the temple after the Lord went back to heaven. They're going to try and witness to their own people. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 9 how he was all things to all people, that he might win some. He spoke about wishing he could be accursed in the book of uh, Romans, chapter 9, going to chapter 11, if it meant they could be saved. But you can't get these verses to teach that the early church, the Gentile contingent in the body of Christ, would meet on the Sabbath in the synagogue to worship Jehovah. In fact, to even envisage saved Gentiles. Worshipping with unsaved Jews in a typical synagogue is almost laughable. You try going to synagogue today. You try knocking on the door of a local synagogue today and say, I want to come worship with my Jewish brethren. They won't even let you in. You're not a Jew. You can pray for them, and you must. You should witness to them, and you must. But you can't worship with them. In fact, you were told not to do so in Second Corinthians chapter 6. You know, You were told not to be unequally yoked with unsaved people. So I think these verses are demonstrating very clearly to me that you've got Gentile proselytes that are converted to Judaism, meeting with unsaved Jews on a typical Sabbath. And what a great opportunity this was for Paul and Barnabas to preach to them. But let's read on. 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. They're kicking against what they fear. Organized religion. 
And I think one of the main attacks that those of us get from those in organized religion is down to jealousy and envy. They despise the fact that those of us which are born again, those of us which have come out of organized religion, those of us which are doing stuff like this, a live stream on a Sunday can do it without any help from organized religion. They think that's audacious. They think it's unacceptable. And they'll say something along the lines of, where do you get your authority from? Who do you think you are? And yet, I was reading through John's Gospel a few nights ago, and that very question was put to John the Baptist. Where do you get your authority from? And John doesn't answer the question, and of course the question came from organized religion, Pharisees and scribes sent from the temple, and five chapters later, he turns around, and he asks that question to his own people. And he says, I was sent from heaven, it's my job to proclaim the Messiah's arrival. He doesn't even justify or take the time to ask their question as to where he got his authority from. Because had those people, the scribes and Pharisees and those in organized religion, had been of God, had they known the truth, had they been the Lord's people, they would have known who he was and where he came from. So when someone says to me, where do you get your authority from? I don't even need to ask that question. Now I know I get it from, I get it from the new birth of course. And if such a person was born again, they would know where I get my authority from. And they could check me out from the scripture, like the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17. Paul doesn't say, how dare you question me? He commends them for checking out what he said from the scripture. So somebody is sincerely wanting to know where a saved man gets his authority from to preach the word of God. They'll go to the scripture, check him out. When an unsaved person wants to know where you get your authority from, don't even waste your time answering their question. In fact, Jesus Christ on many occasions would answer a question with a question. They'd ask him a question, like on this subject of authority, and he would say, uh, what do you think about the son of David? Whose son is he? And they say to themselves, well, if we answer his question, he'll ask us, why didn't you believe on him? And if we say we don't know, or if we say uh, he's a false prophet, the people will stone us. They start to play this game with the Messiah. And that's what you find with organized religion. They play this game with you. It's partly semantics, but it's also partly the sense of trying to strip you down of your authority. And I call that a character assassination. But 45, when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, I bet they were, and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. That sounds so typical of organized religion today. You try and witness to an unsaved religious person on the street, they will say, well, my church believes this, and they will contradict the word of God. Or they'll say, well, we believe that, and they'll blaspheme the word of God. It could be a Muslim, it could be a Catholic, it could be a JW, it could be anyone and everyone, it makes no difference. But here, this crowd are kicking against Paul and Barnabas, doing great work for the Lord. Look at 46, please. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. This is incredible. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, no doubt. They're bold, something we need today. And they say to this crowd of unrighteous, unsaved Jews, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, verbally, inspiration. But seeing you put it from you, seeing as you're not interested in this, don't cast your pearls before swine, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. You're going to save yourselves, are you? You're going to go back to the law? John 6, 6, 6. You're going to go out from us? First John chapter 2. You're going to try and do religion, are you? Look at Romans 10, 1 to 4, we get a chance. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. We're going to continue to preach to the Jews as and when we can. 
And they would do. And later on, Paul is going to be whipped. Peter is going to have problems. And we know that every apostle, apart from one, was put to death for their faith. But here, you've got this group of religious people, which I think is probably the number one enemy when it comes to Bible-believing Christians, those of us which have come out of organized religion, turning from everlasting life. Not interested in it. Mary says this. The Mass says that. My church teaches this. I'm a good Catholic. I'm a good Protestant. This is just your interpretation. We've been going for 2,000 years. We go back to Abraham. I'm a good Sikh. I'm a good Hindu. It doesn't matter what you are or where you come from. If you're not saved, according to the Bible, you're lost. That's not my words. That's not my opinion. It's what the Bible says. And here, one last time from 46, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. Because you're beloved for the Father's sakes, we love you, we're Jews, and yet, if you're not interested in this, and you judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life, you're self-righteous, you're going to try and save yourself by doing religion, okay, lo we turn to the Gentiles. Now the church gets a look in. And this is going to go back to the Gentile proselytes that are very much a part of this early Jewish community that are going to the synagogue. And yet at the same time, you've got many very much interested in what's going on. And that's the great power of street preaching. When I street preach, I can preach to many people at the same time. My little audience may not be interested, so I preach over their heads and I preach to people that are interested and this is what I think Paul and Barnabas are doing. Paul and Barnabas know that this initial group of hostile Jews are not going to receive it. So he's going to preach over their heads to the Gentiles. And yet one last time, free will, starting from 41, going into 46, is going to result in their damnation. And when people arrive in hell, they can't say, Christ didn't love me or die for me. Yes, he did. You had a conscience which you suppressed. You seared it with a hot iron. You turn from light all around you and you chose to embrace darkness rather than light. Why? Because your deeds are evil. John chapter 3. But let's read on and let's conclude today's broadcast if we may in verse 47. For so hath the Lord commanded us saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Unlimited atonement. And this book, all 28 chapters and we're not even halfway through it yet, isn't even a doctrinal book. I mean, systematic theology is going to be found in Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. This book is a transitional book. This is history of the early church. And here, Paul was probably the main speaker. He's quoting Isaiah 42 in reference to the Messiah being sent as a light of the Gentiles. But he says in 47, For so hath the Lord commanded us. He's saying, God has sent us to preach to you, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles. It was always the Lord's purpose to have Jews and Gentiles saved. That's what John 10 is all about. And Romans 4, you've got the Jews and the church in heaven, the 24 elders. I've set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, the Messiah to be a light, a beacon to the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. He dies on the cross, and when it says, Father, it is finished, into thy hands I commend my spirit, that is completion of the Lord's atonement for our sins. It's what we call a done deal. But again, you have to personally believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You have to personally appropriate the atonement to be saved. You have to turn to him in faith and believe on him and in him to be saved. It's faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. So grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Or Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. 
It's sola fide, as the reformers would call it. It's all about faith. No works involved. And that's why I think so many churches hate sola fide, justification by faith alone. They hate imputation and they hate sola scriptura, the scripture being the final authority, because they know that in some ways that takes their authority away from them. It takes the need away from people to be a part of their fellowships, if you will. We don't need fellowships per se if you have Christ and the scripture. And even Martin Luther knew that. And he, to a shame, would continue to baptize infants even after he was saved. And he did it because he thought if he didn't do it, parents would no longer bring their children to church on a Sunday. And he was worried he would lose many people. So he continued to baptize infants. But that's not Bible. And I'm not against breaking bread with other people. I'm not against reading the word of God with other people. But you see what I'm trying to get at here. If you teach the scripture and Christ alone, it does cause great anxiety for those that are in organized religion and those that make a living off organized religion. So I'm going to close there in verse 47. And uh, I think we've covered more than enough ground for today's Lord's Day service. And I'll pick it up next week in verse 48. And I'll dismantle the heresy one more time next Sunday that the early church, specifically the Gentile contingent, would meet on a Sabbath to worship Jehovah. It's false. But next week we'll pick it up in verse 48.